Hello, it's good to be with you again. My name is Grant. I'm lead pastor at New Song Church, and this is a very special day. This is Easter Sunday, uh, if you're watching this on Sunday, that is. Uh, a very important day in the church calendar, uh, but actually uh, an important day for many people. Some people don't really care that much about the church calendar, actually, because all over America, this day is pretty special, Easter. Um, but just to think about a few things, you know, there's, there's many ways that we can celebrate it, but this is not just a time for Easter eggs and daffodils and family traditions, even though those can be important and they can be nourishing and they can be wonderful. It's not even just a time to remember the life of Jesus around the time of what's called his passion, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, especially the resurrection, right? And that is true, and that's the story. But, but I'd like to suggest that it's this, that it's a time when each of our own personal stories, that actually the real stuff of our lives, is invited to encounter the one true and central story of all time, of all creation. And it's a story that we call the gospel, which means the good news. Uh, to find our stories invited to into a conversation with this great story, and in doing so, find ourselves recalibrated, re-centered upon uh, not only that which is most true about the story, but also about ourselves, who we are, and about one another and how we relate, and about this creation in which we live and how we relate to that also. For many of us, our stories this year seem to have taken a, an abrupt deviation from the plot that we thought we were writing uh, up to this point. Plans have been derailed. A lot of really painful things have happened. Re relationships have been strained or broken, even broken. Weaknesses have been exposed in our character, ourselves, our institutions. Uh, character flaws and bad habits have been revealed uh, by these circumstances. Last Easter in 2020, I recorded what was my very first sermon in the sanctuary at New Song Church to an audience of two wonderful people who were helping do the, doing the tech stuff and two iPhones. And the message was entitled, The Difference a Day Makes. Seemed really... Um, fitting at that point because things were changing rapidly every day and, you know, we felt that, you know, kind of good things maybe on, on the horizon wouldn't be too long uh, any day now, maybe people would say. Well, now that we've reached Easter 2021, it seems to have morphed from the difference a day makes into perhaps the difference a year makes. Perhaps this year will be better. What a year it's been. We've encountered so much that is new and disorienting over the past year. And even the usual stuff of life, just the, the everyday things, have been so greatly affected by our circumstances that it feels like nothing is familiar or predictable or anymore and perhaps never again will be. We ask ourselves, will anything ever be normal again? Will things ever return to normal? And, and the answer, I think, is that surely... It doesn't really matter if things even get close to what they were prior to this time. We can't ever return to where we've been because this past year has changed us in deep and irreversible ways. We have been changed. So the events of this holy week culminating in this day of Easter, this day of resurrection, invite us to turn our eyes towards the one thing that never changes that never changes and that meets us in any circumstances, any circumstances with its everlasting hope and ever-renewing strength and ever-refreshing life. This is Christianity. This is the gospel, the good news. And boy, do we need it right now. 
We need it right now to be able to respond well to the challenging days in which we find ourselves right now, to be able to respond well. We need this story, this gospel, to be fully human in community with one another, to resist the ugly impulses that at these times consistently seem to tempt us into acting out on and expressing to one another. To encounter in this world of trouble, true hope and peace and grace and love and joy that can never be taken away from us. To actually encounter and actually dwell in the place where we actually truly long to be. To find ourselves loved and, and to be able to truly love others. To discover that despite the challenges of life, we are essentially okay. To access a place of provision and sufficiency that we can enjoy together and share with the world in which we live. We want to see and to know and to understand and to live well the remaining days of our life on the earth, no matter how long they might be. And the core of what we need, this Christian story is called the gospel. I love what C.S. Lewis said. We've been studying the screw tape letters on Sunday evenings in a book club. And C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his talks, uh, said this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. We need a fresh perspective. We need to understand this thing we call the gospel. Last year, we worked our way through a series of messages about words, about the importance and power of words, both for harm, but also for good. And we called that series Words with Friends. And the word gospel was on the original list that we presented to everyone at the church to vote on, but it didn't make the cut. A surprise, salvation made the cut, but I think people were more interested in, in some of the other words like heaven and hell and things. You know, It was a, a great chance to think about those. But if it had made it, I think there'd be one text in the New Testament that we would most likely have used to think about what the meaning of the word gospel and it's in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And it's the text that we're going to look at today. Paul is writing to a church in a culture that's very much like ours. I was reading the other day uh, a background to the letter to the Corinthians. And it's incredible how many points of connection there are with our modern American culture. It's very multicultural in that place. All kinds of people were joined there. It was very economically powerful, but there was a great disparity between the very wealthy and the very poor. And, and the morally, it was very broken. It was far removed from the vision and the intention that God had for human being beings living together and flourishing in the way that he intended. And so Paul writes to also, he writes to a church in that culture. We talked about in Philippians, I think, about, uh, you know, a kind of a culture within a culture, this subculture of Christians living out the kingdom within the larger kingdom of the Roman Empire. Paul's writing to a church just like that, because in, very, in these early days of its existence, it has lapsed into all kinds of problems of division and lapses of morality, broken patterns of living, etc. And Paul was really concerned concerned about the damage that this might do to their witness to the living Lord Jesus. And he wants to point them in the right direction. So what we have now in this letter that was translated from Greek, which in which it was originally written, we have 16 chapters of counsel and commands of advice and encouragement that Paul writes to his friends. And there's a pinnacle moment Almost at the very end, he's given all this information to them. And then in chapter 15, there's this pinnacle place, this moment where, around which everything else that he has spoken and in, indeed everything he's living for is, is find it, finds its place. And so here's what he writes. 
this is what we want to think about today as we celebrate uh, that Jesus rose from the dead and all that that might mean for our lives. In chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared too. And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of people to whom Jesus appeared after he was raised from the dead, alive and yet still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. I want to highlight one set of words to start with that cry out for our attention today. And it's uh, in the second part of that passage, and it says this, for I handed on to you, Corinthians, my friends, as of first importance, pole position, priority, top thing, The message says it really well. Eugene Peterson translates it as this. The first thing I did was place before you what was placed so emphatically, sorry, what was placed so emphatically before me, emphatically. Amongst all that Paul is telling them, this was the most important thing for them to know. And so that's what we're going to do today. What's the most important thing? First things first. We're going to keep it simple. I think that's something that's really powerful right now that can cut through so much of just the chaos of these days in our thinking, in our living, in in all the things that we're encountering to find some way to prioritize, to look into the clarity of the message of the gospel on this day of days. So the first thing Paul tells us, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Well, the first thing it tells us is that we are people who sin. We are sinners. It tells us that sin is an unavoidable part of the human life, the human experience, the human condition. Scripture makes it quite clear that every single person falls short of the perfect will of God for human beings, that we would love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would love our neighbors as, we, as ourselves. And in, in many ways and places and, and uh, situations, we, we fail every day to live up to that. And, and that it's really, really ugly. It's really ugly. I think we've seen that over this past year. It seems like a lot of the ugliness that we're just kind of simmering beneath the surface or somewhat hidden by, you know, the veneer of our polite, respectable society kind of burst out through uh, our broken attempts to pretend that everything is okay, just to kind of keep the peace. We've seen the consequences of all kinds of misinformation and utter lies and power-seeking uh, 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 movements, tearing apart communities and families and churches. We've seen the specter of racism become a fully-fledged monster, much that had been hidden beneath the surface in, in just the experiences of others that we, I maybe didn't need to pay attention to has been brought into the light. The trial of Derek Chauvin began this, uh, began this week on Monday. Uh, the police officer uh, who pressed his knee on the neck of George Floyd for almost 10 minutes as the man uh, prone on the ground called out for his mother, begging to be able to breathe. And we all watched it and the events that unfolded and all the pain and the sorrow and the anger and the ugliness of how our various communities responded. And that's just one aspect. But it seems ironic to me somehow that that trial is beginning 
All eyes are on that trial, at least in America and probably around the world. And it's beginning on this week of the passion of Jesus, the one uh, who, who found himself caught up in all of the broken uh, characteristics of the human race. Uh, and, and I think as we look at something like that, that circumstance, or many others that we've experienced. I think we've all wrestled with emotions and thoughts and impulses of anger and mistrust and division. And I think much of it, we would be too ashamed to admit perhaps the darkness that we have encountered in our hearts. You know, and I mention the, the trial and, and things like that because once again, we just want to make sure that, you know, when, when, when people are talking about this, the church needs to be talking about this stuff because otherwise we give people the impression that this faith has nothing of relevance to say to these issues. And especially we need to say things when it affects our brothers and sisters of different cultures and backgrounds whom Christ loves, whom Christ died for, and whom we have been called into unity with to listen and to have a shared experience with. And when it has consequences for our witness for Christ, when people look to the church uh, for some sort of response or, or word of, of uh, something that, to seek some kind of confidence or some truth, and we are silent, that's a problem. So what happens when we, we encounter uh, the ugliness of this past year? And I just know I have felt it myself. And so I look, in, I look within myself because I'm the only person I can truly know. And, and that one of the things I can encounter when I, when I find myself responding out of my sinfulness, my brokenness, the first thing is a sense of guilt and shame. I can find myself living with a kind of low-grade fever of remorse and regret, of guilt, of failure. Uh, Rosamund Lupton, who's, who's an author uh, in one of her books, had a character who said this, I get up and pace the room as if I can leave my guilt behind me, but it tracks me as I walk, an ugly shadow made by myself. Guilt and shame. Do you feel that residual weight, that presence? What do we do with that? Despair is another thing. We just kind of feeling that I may as well just give up trying to be a better person because in this world, the way it is and the way I am in this world, the way it is, it, there's always a new way to mess up and, and, and find myself at odds with other people. Uh, forgive me for, for the little like, word in this next quote, but it kind of struck me as being very true. Christina Westover in one of her books said, a character said, sometimes I just want to paint the words, it's my fault across my forehead to save people the time of being pissed off with me. She's just like, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of this constant sense of I'm offended, I'm angry, I, I'm trying to find What's the proper, appropriate response to what I see? And so much of it, I go like, but that just seems wrong. I see this injustice now. I hate the people who perpetrate it. I want to see them suffer. And I can't escape from this. You feel it? As Paul, the one who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, said in another one of his writings to some people in Rome, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What do we do with this weight? That's the first thing the gospel tells us. That Christ died for our sins, that we are sinners. What do we do with this weight? And I think in response often to this reality and how it plays out, uh, we have to try to put our sin away from ourselves. And we become masterful at doing that. To quote a common expression, we spend a lot of time trying to put makeup on a pig 
no offense to pigs, lovely animals that they are, trying to make something that is perhaps not so pleasant kind of just cover up, make it look okay. You know, we reflexively hold as far away from ourselves as possible the truth that we are sinful creatures and we try to present to the world our best life yet. We hide from God, from shame. We hide from one another because we fear we'd be rejected if they really knew how broken we are. And we hide from ourselves because we don't want to admit it in ourselves because we've got nowhere to put it. But in the events of Holy Week, the truths about ourselves that we constantly try to clean up and sanitize are brought kicking and screaming into the light. In the story, the injustice, the murder of an innocent, the crowds crying out for Jesus to be put away, to be crucified, the callous disregard for life exhibited by the Roman soldiers who so so easily beat and tortured Jesus and so easily seemed with joy almost to relish the nailing of him to a cross, the deadly powers of religious hypocrisy Peter's weaknesses, his denial, despite his strong uh, proclamations that he would never betray Jesus, he denied him. And then he fled in brokenhearted regret. Judas's betrayal and suicide in utter despair, nowhere else to go. And if we're honest with ourselves, we find our lives bursting from the pages. The story tells us that there is no innocent person There's no innocent person and that God is perfectly righteous when he judges our sin. But secondly, the gospel tells us that our sin in its complete totality has been taken care of. In its complete totality, our sin has been dealt with. Remember, Paul writes that Christ died for our sins. And John, chapter 19, his gospel, he relates some words that Jesus says from the cross, and one of them is this. Jesus said, it is finished. And then he breathed his last after saying, God, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. What does that mean? Three words, it is finished. The first one, it. What is it? What is it? It is all the work, the life, the ministry, all of it that he did to bring us back to God. That's, that's it. Is, what does is mean? It means reality, accomplished in the past and the present and the future for all time. It is finished. What does finished mean? It simply means completed, done, nothing more to be added or subtracted. Jesus only said a few things from the cross. It's reported, and one of them was this, it is finished. He meant every word of it. And in that death and in that moment, there was opened up a place for us to go to put the sin, to put the guilt, to put the shame, and to receive complete and total forgiveness. You have been the subject of breathtaking, staggering grace. Every last piece of sin has been removed from your account. And thirdly, it shouts at us through all the struggle, all the pain, all of the complexity 
the undeniable truth that God loves us. God loves us. You are loved by God. You always have been. You always will be. And nothing can ever change that. And it's not some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling kind of love, but a love that is powerful, that consistently leads to action. And the eternal love of God for you found its fullest inescapable center in the person of Jesus condemned to die and willingly giving up his life for us, for love. And that love is an unbreakable cord that passes through all of our sins, all of our defenses, all of our sorrow and pain and shame and anger and self-reliance and self-loathing, all of our shallow living and escapist habits and connects us and holds us for all time perfectly to the heart of God and nothing can separate us from that love once we receive that love. John Newton, you may have heard of, a former captive of a slave ship in the 1700s and the writer of the hymn, Amazing Grace, wrote another song. And this is the words to, to, his, to his poem that became a hymn. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Oh, can it be Upon a tree, the Savior died for me. My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Second thing Paul says, that he was buried. He was buried. Surely God could have caused Jesus to go from dying to resurrection quite easily. Have you ever considered that? That from the cross of Good Friday to the warm sunlight of resurrection morning, without ever passing through the cold, silent tomb of death, we could have bypassed that part. Why the long hours of waiting and wondering and the real days, hours and minutes when all of creation wondered at the apparent inactivity of God, the silence of God, the absence of God. Well, we have buried many things this past year. Some of them have actually been people that were really dear and special to us. Some of us have buried plans and dreams, hopes and expectations. For some of us, the things that we really hope to believe about ourselves and the things that we were putting our confidence in have somehow been buried and they're in the cold, tomb beneath the cold soil of the ground. And then I think if we can make a headstone for every loss, they would stretch out by, before our eyes in endless rows, enough to rival the war memorials in Flanders, France, and Arlington, Virginia. So we lament. And we experience the lack of of an ability to control things that is our true reality in that space of death. And so we turn to God in prayer and dependence and we begin to understand that God is also present. The gospel is also present and about these times of sorrow and silence and waiting. This is every bit as much a part of the story as all the rest. 
This is the gospel. Thirdly, Paul tells us that he was raised to life. He was raised to life. Nothing could prevent the life of God that was demonstrated and set loose on creation in the resurrection moment of Jesus Christ from the dead. Nothing could prevent it. And in doing so, he swept up all of creation into that great moment of the shocking and complete reversal of death, that death would no more have the power, that death had no more the final say. You know, some of us got up early this morning to celebrate the sunrise on this Resurrection Sunday to worship and to hear the story and to pray. And it is remarkable to consider that the same sun that we saw rise this morning rose on the empty tomb over 2,000 years ago. And every day that sun rises and every day can bring this life, this resurrection life to our weary bones Truly, we can get up every morning because Christ got up on that morning. The gospel is not just a story to be believed and trusted in. It is a reality to be lived out every single day and the door is wide open for us to do so. In this letter uh, around this concept of the gospel of first importance, uh, he precedes it with some other words he says here about the good news And it's a beautiful little progression. He says that this good news that you have in turn received, uh, because it was proclaimed to you, in which you also stand, through which you're also being saved. There's a lot of rich material. We don't really have time today to go into all of it. But simply to say that this thing is received, the same is shared and proclaimed, and in this we can stand. Get up in the morning and stand. And this concept of being saved, what's that all about? It means that that the life is a regenerative force in us. Often we're unaware of how it is happening, but it is always happening because God is faithful to do so. With this amazing story throughout all the scripture uh, of creation and fall and then redemption. And then we're in this time now of recreation and then leading into new creation when Christ will finally return to create, to fulfill all the promises. So creation, fall, redemption, recreation, new creation. And that's where we are right now. We're in recreation. I don't mean just chilling out on a hammock, sipping, a, you know, whatever is your favorite umbrella drink. I mean, being recreated, being transformed, this kingdom process, this life that is abundant, that is unstoppable, that seeps into every part of us. And it actually causes us pain sometimes. You know, like when you're a kid, I remember when I was like 12, 13 years old and every single ache and pain that I ever got, my mom would say, oh, it's growing pains, son. (laughs) It's growing pains. And I was like, what's growing pains? You know, do you ever, my mom ever tell you that stuff? But you know, we're experiencing a lot of growing pains right now. This change, this transformation that's happening for us right now is most definitely growing pains because God's ushering us into some new life. It's so apparent to me. So it's got a good way to see it. It's like, wow, I feel like really uncomfortable and restless right now. Things are difficult. We say, yeah, it's probably growing pains, my friend. Don't stop. Press on. This is the gospel. It's about life. It's moving. It's alive. And then the final thing that Paul says, that he appeared alive to witnesses. 
It says he appeared to Peter and to the 12, that's the 12 disciples, the apostles, minus Judas, of course, right? Then more than 500 brothers and sisters. And he actually says, he says to the people in Corinth, most of whom are alive, though some have passed away since then. I mean, pretty easy to fact check. That's a pretty confident thing to say. If they didn't see Jesus, he appeared to them. And then to the brothers and sisters and to James and then to Paul. And Jesus called the disciples. Jesus called Paul post-resurrection. And Jesus is alive today and he continues to call people into relationship with them. Jesus called me back when I was a small 13-year-old boy in 1983 in England. He said, Grant, come to me. Put your trust in me. Follow me. And I said, yes. And every single day since he's been calling me, sometimes I've not been listening, but he's been calling me, inviting me to join him in his work, in his world. Has he called you? Has he called you? Is he calling you? Do you need to do some business with God today? I tell you, you will never regret it. What are you going to do with your sin? What are you going to do with your shame and your guilt? Do you understand that he has done everything necessary that you can be unburdened of that? Wait, you have somewhere to put it because God loves you so much that he gave his only son that he could do this, that you receive forgiveness and new life and a future and a purpose and a hope and energy this life that is beyond your ability to manufacture your own future or your own purpose, it actually is something that grows from inside of you and you do it in collaboration with other people. And it's messy and it's difficult, but it's absolutely beautiful. And it's what you long for. That's what you're longing for. It is peace, it is joy, it is hope, it is life. New Song Church. We are a gospel church. We are a gospel church. That's why it's important to unpack what the gospel is. Every single thing we do needs to come from this story. We don't pretend that we've got it all together. Not at all. So we should be transparent with each other. Let's not hide from God, hide from one another, or hide from ourselves. Let's be honest. The greatest thing that ever happens in a small group is when some person gets brutally honest about their own brokenness. And you feel everyone's shoulders just like, wow, them too, me too. what about the death parts? We sit, we sit with those who mourn. We sit and wait with them in quiet confidence that God will answer. The resurrection will come. And what about life? That's why we pray and sing and worship and serve and plant and water and sow and harvest all the things that we are doing. And yes, this has been a hard year. And yes, we have been changed. We've been in many ways broken. And so much of what we were doing has been just turned upside down. But the power and opportunity of the gospel has never been diminished. And it moves on, moves forward. Let's not fall behind. We need to move forward with it. Many things have changed. We have been changed. But the first and most important things remain the same. And I, and I do see a season now that we're entering into. There, there's been a lot of hard things. There's going to be more hard things in the future. So, you know, buckle up if you're with us on this ride. But I've seen beautiful signs of growth. It's like the spring shoots that start coming up after the winter is passing. And, and it's amazing what's happening beneath the surface under the earth. And it takes a while before you start seeing these little green shoots. And I've been seeing this happen. Some of the things we planted before the pandemic in terms of relationships with McKinley's Children's Center and Life Pacific University, Charter Oak Estates, the local schools and other communities around us are starting to come back to fruit again. We're starting to see some connections in how we can relate and connect with them. New opportunities to be gospel people together and spread the good news that Jesus died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again and he appeared and he appears.
and we can have faith in this faithful one. Uh, he is risen. Christ is risen. And, and we have hope. Uh, let's pray together as we continue on with this day together. And if you're able to come and join us uh, at 11 o'clock, I look forward to seeing you there. Uh, and we're going to have a simple celebration gathering. We're going to consider some more of the implications of what it means that Christ did this for us and is doing this for us and how we join with him. Uh, so let's pray together. Oh Lord, we simply thank you while we were sinners, you died for us. Lord, we thank you that we love because you first loved us. We thank you that uh, you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we thank you that you reminded us to seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be given to us. Uh, we thank you that your word tells us to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with you, Lord. And we just see all the, we see all the damage, we see all the tension, we see all the anger and the pain. And we want to we sweep it away from our sight or we want to just engage and fix it. And, and, and we are just human beings, Lord. So we, we cry out to you, Lord. Bring your righteousness and start with us. Bring your justice. May it start with us. Bring your life. Awaken us. And send us out to share the good news. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.